there are a great many things about which you can be neutral, aren't there? Who has the best French fries? Is it McDonald's? Is it Burger King? Is it Wendy's? Doesn't really matter, does it? The answer, of course, is tater tots are the best. There are a great many things, though, you can remain neutral about. Are you Sam's Club or are you Costco? They're the same thing, right? So it doesn't really make that much of a difference. There's a great many things that you can remain neutral about. Do you cheer for Kentucky or do you cheer for Duke? That one might not be neutral, right? Depends on who you ask. But in the end, it doesn't really matter, right? You can be a Wildcats fan, and I don't know why you would, but you could cheer. You could cheer for the Blue Devils, and it wouldn't really matter. There's a great many of those kinds of things in our life about which you can remain neutral, and it really doesn't matter. In fact, it's what makes life kind of enjoyable, right? It's always fun to have an opposing side, somebody else who you can cheer not just for, but somebody you can cheer against, and it doesn't really matter. But there are other things in life where neutrality is not an option, where there actually is a right side and a wrong side. So when your wife asks you, what do you think, dear, who cooks this better, me or your mom? You can't be neutral. You can't say, well, I don't know, I could go either way. There is a right choice. Your allegiance needs to lie in a certain spot on some of those questions. It isn't possible in everything to just say, I'm going to stick to the middle. I'm going to sit on the fence. I'm going to be in between. One day I'm going to be this way, the other day I'm going to be that way. There are questions in life that are decisive matters, that are important, that matter more than who you cheer for or where you get your french fries. Neutrality is not always an option. Just consider times of war. In a time of war, it won't do, will it? If the enemy is invading and coming into your land, you can't say, well, I don't really care. I suppose I could let the opposing army camp out in my front yard. You wouldn't be hailed as a great neutral force, would you? You would be accused of aiding and abetting the enemy. Because there are times and there are instances, and life is actually full of these things, where neutrality is a myth where you are either for or, even if you don't make a choice, you are against. Jesus is case in point. What we heard Jesus say to us this morning is that there are times and places, and he is the prime example where neutrality is not an option. How did he put it? He who is not with me is in the middle. He who is not with me is just waiting to see. He who is not with me, Jesus says is against me. That's because when it comes to Jesus, it matters. When it comes to who's going to win a basketball game, what difference does it really make? Right? There's a lot of money riding on it, of course. It matters to some people, but it really doesn't make that big of a difference, just like it doesn't matter where you get your french fries from. But when it comes to Jesus, the stakes are a lot higher. And the higher the stakes, the more important that decision is. The higher the stakes, maybe we should put it this way, the less neutrality there is. And so with Jesus, the question is not, how do I feel today? But the question is, are you with him? Are you with him or not? 
That's because with Jesus, the stakes are ultimate. With Jesus, the stakes are not just, you know, similar to something else. When it comes to Jesus, the stakes are eternal. The stakes matter. And Jesus knew that, right? Jesus was a man who came on a mission, not to play a game, not to entertain the masses, not to hold his finger to the wind and say, I think today I'm going to do this, and tomorrow I'm going to do that, and next month I'll do something else. Jesus was a man who knew who he was And knew what he was about. He was no neutral figure. Jesus came on a mission, not to play a game, but to wage warfare. At least that's how he put it in our gospel reading this morning, right? And it strikes us as a little bit odd because we hail Jesus as the Lamb of God. And what could be meeker? What could be lowlier than a lamb led to the slaughter? And certainly Jesus was meek and gentle and lowly. But make no mistake, Jesus came to conquer. Jesus came to win a victory. Jesus came to attack and to overcome the evil one so that he might bring you into his kingdom and do away with all of the devil's power. That's why when he talked to those who opposed him, he didn't mince words. He put it this way in our gospel reading today. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but... But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Jesus fancies himself as a stronger man. Jesus describes himself in our gospel reading today, and he doesn't just describe himself, but then he carries it out as the stronger man who comes to attack the devil's stronghold, who comes like Achilles to take down the devil's kingdom, who comes like David to destroy Goliath and feed his flesh to the birds of the heavens. Jesus, make no mistake, is the stronger man. And he comes, he comes to attack this one who is so strong. That's describing the devil and his kingdom. Jesus says that he has come to take away his armor, that is to take away his weapons. And just consider this morning the weapons that the devil has wielded since the beginning. How did it go there in the Garden of Eden? He came with this weapon of deceit, with the weapon of a lie. He came to our first mother Eve and he said, you know, God's holding out on you. You know, he told you not to eat from that tree, but he only told you that because he wants to hold you back. God is holding back on you. Don't trust his word. Don't trust his commandments. Don't do what he says. You can have it all, Eve. You can eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then you'll become like God. See, at the heart of every one of the devil's lies is this, that God is holding out on you that you know better than God, that Satan somehow will give you something better than your heavenly father. That's his lie. That's his chief weapon. And Jesus comes to expose the lie to his light, to show the devil's lies for what they are, empty. To show God's word for what it is, true and faithful and good and pure and clean. When the devil comes to you with his lies that, you know, what God says is really not all that good. He doesn't understand you. He doesn't understand your situation or your times or the scenario of your life. You need to improve on his commands. You need to improve on his word. Then let the light of Jesus show that for what it is, a lie from the pit of hell. 
Jesus comes to expose that lie of Satan, that God is not good, that he is not on your side, that he doesn't want what's best for you, or that somehow he doesn't really know what's best for you, and you've got to figure it out for yourself. Jesus exposes that lie, and he also takes away the devil's other chief weapon, which is to accuse, because you know how it goes. As soon as the devil tricks you into swallowing his lie, he heaps on the accusations. You've gone against God's word. You haven't done what you ought to do. Don't you know that now you're a sinner? Don't you know that you deserve hell? Don't you know that your Father in heaven is angry with you? Jesus takes away those accusations by giving us, in place of our own defense, his defense. Remember how it went in the Garden of Eden again. What did Adam and Eve do as soon as they knew that they had sinned? They tried to cover themselves up, remember? They sowed for themselves fig leaves. Jesus comes to cover you with something much better than a fig leaf. He comes to cover you with his own blood. And the blood of Jesus, when it covers you, it answers every last accusation that can be hurled against you. And here's the wonderful thing. When you are covered in the blood of Jesus, when you are washed pure by the blood of the Lamb, when his blood is your garment of righteousness, then the devil cannot trap you in guilt. He cannot trap you in shame. He cannot trap you in fear. See, Jesus comes to take away all those weapons of the devil, those weapons that he would love to use to control you, to manipulate you, to keep you in fear of God. Jesus takes away the accusation. He takes away the guilt. He takes away the shame so that fear departs. And love enters in. So that instead of running away from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, hiding from God as if you can hide from God, instead of running from him when you are covered in the blood of Jesus, then you run to him. Instead of being afraid of God and his commands, then you run to him and you hold yourself up to him and say, take me, dear Lord, as I am. That's how Jesus unmasks the devil's lie. That's how he takes away his tools and his weapons. And he comes to do that so that he may claim your allegiance. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me is going to crumble into ruin. Jesus brings this division, doesn't he? There are a lot of things in your life that you can be neutral about and no one's going to care. Nobody really cares. It really doesn't matter where you eat your french fries. It does matter if you cheer for Kentucky or Duke, right? We do judge each other on that. But nobody cares about the french fry question. But the Jesus question causes division. With the Jesus question, it isn't a game. With the Jesus question, it isn't simply a matter of throwing our hands up in the air and saying, well, that's your private opinion and you're entitled to that. With the Jesus question, the stakes are high. He who is not with me is against me. There can be no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There can be no apathy, is another way to put it. We can't be like the junior high and senior high kids are. You know how it goes when you're that age, sixth grade through 12th grade. You want to be cool, right? And what's the best way to be cool? Well, don't care about anything. Because if you care about something, well, you might pick the wrong thing. This is what happens to every kid from the time they're a sixth grader till I don't know when it stops. But they suddenly pretend like they don't care about anything. They pretend like they don't have thoughts. They pretend like they don't have likes. They pretend like they don't have interests until they see, well, what does everybody else like? And then I'll choose it. Then I'll go in for that. They feign this neutrality. They feign this apathy because they think 
it will be safer that way. They can avoid any kind of public shame or humiliation. But there is something better than safety. There is something better than apathy. There is something better than being cool in the eyes of the world all around you. And do you know what that is? It's to be with Jesus. It is to be with Jesus, to know who you are, to know whose you are, to know what he is about, to know what you therefore are about, to not be constantly carried this way and that way by whatever is cool today or uncool tomorrow. Zeal is better than apathy. Zeal for Jesus is far better than lukewarmness for Jesus because with Jesus there is no room for neutrality. With Jesus there is no room for, well, I guess I'm kind of a little bit of a Christian. No, with Jesus it is more and more and more. It is more and more and more of his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his guidance and it is more and more and more of our response to his call. So put away the thought of being a cool senior high kid. Forget all about that. Who cares about that anyways? And let yourself be gathered in with Jesus, for anything else is going to crumble into ruins. Our society has been hell-bent on trying to be neutral, hasn't it? For the last, I don't know, 50 to 60 to 70 to 100 years, I don't know when it started, but we've decided that we're going to be secular. We're going to pretend like everything is equal, like all roads are the same. How's it going? We've been bent on seeing if Jesus' words actually come true, and you know what? They do. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with Jesus crumbles into utter emptiness. But he who is with Jesus and he who gathers with Jesus is full of life, is full of blessing, is full of goodness. You know what it's like? It's like building two different kinds of houses. That's the way Jesus describes it here this morning. Jesus came into this world not to play games, but to play for keeps. He would have you and he would have you entirely and completely. Not aloof, not apathetic, but completely won over for him. He would have you to be a house that is built up and full, not an empty house. Think of that this morning. How is the house of your life? Is everything in good order and on the shelf and all nice and neat, but the house empty of life? If it is, then you are decorated for demons. Isn't that what Jesus said? If there is no one living in the home, it can be the most beautiful home, it can be the nicest home in the world, but it's only good for one thing to be sold to a buyer, and the devil wants to have it. But if your house is full of Jesus, if your house is full of his word and his faith, if your house is full of Jesus and the name of his father and the praise of the son, if your house is full of the things of light, all that is good, all that is true, all that is honest, if your house is full of those things, then there's no room for the demons. In fact, the demons can't stand that kind of stuff. The demons flee when the name of Jesus is held up in a home. The demons flee when you pray before your meal or after your meal. The demons flee when the name of God is held up and honored in a home and in a heart. In that place, they can't get in. Blessed are those who hear the word of God, who are kept by that word of God, and who keep it in their hearts. Keep that word of Jesus, dear friends. Decorate your home, decorate your heart for him. Because with him there is life, there is blessing, there is goodness, there is truth, there is beauty. There is all the things that St. Paul describes in Ephesians 5. There is fullness. But without him, 
Without him, our houses may be picture perfect, but they are empty ruins. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and who keep it. To Christ be the glory now and always. Amen.